Hi Venters, welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host Freddie Cocker and this podcast is brought to you by Vents, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. This is a very special episode for today's pod as I'm checking in with someone who is in some ways a very big part of the journey of Vent. Prior to starting Vent, I was involved with a Huddersfield Town fan channel platform called Talk of the Town, which my special guest, Elliot Wheat Bowen, created. Elliot asked me to come on board and write articles, sub-edit his, and I even did a few media appearances on some outlets during the 2016-2017 promotion season and 2017-2018 survival season. You can probably guess which one of those I enjoyed more to do. It was a special time and my work with TOTT feels locked into that period alongside it. Myself and Elliot's full-time jobs then had bigger workloads and Elliot was in a job with pretty unsociable hours. The fan channel scene then began to change pretty rapidly and written content was no longer king anymore with podcasts and video content, the formats that most content creators began doing and getting great success from. So, TOTT came to an end and we went our separate ways whilst keeping an eye on each other's respective journeys from there. In this episode, I check in with Elliot about the start, middle and end of that TOTT journey, what he's doing with his life now for work and how it's given him purpose in a different way. For Elliot's mental health, he has suffered from undiagnosed body dysmorphia and anxiety, which he struggled with in his early 20s. At its worst, he would avoid being photographed and go swimming with a t-shirt on. Thankfully, through healthy regular exercise, mindfulness and other positive tools, he has overcome his BD and can enjoy life much more. He is still getting to grips with his anxiety, however, but hopefully after this pod, he can go on a similar journey with this too. So this is how my conversation with Elliot Wheat Bowen went. Elliot, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. Thank you for taking the time to let me check in with you. Our chat off air was, as you said at the time, the first time we'd ever actually spoken over the phone with literally three to four years of previous interactions over Twitter, probably longer now, actually. How are you, mate? Yeah, I'm not bad. Thanks for having me. And yeah, it was a bit strange, to be honest, because obviously I've known you for so long and this was like the first time that we'd actually talked. But yeah, I'm doing well. Excellent, mate. We've got a lot of uh, life to catch up on. It's great to see you doing so well after you went through, uh, fair to say, a few difficulties in your life. So we're going to talk all about that as well as some positive stuff. Without further ado, are you ready to start the show? I'm ready. Let's start your pod, mate, by talking about your professional journey, as it hasn't just encompassed Talk of the Town, as I mentioned in the intro. However, take me back to that, the conception of the idea, why you wanted to bring me on board and what you wanted to achieve with it. So at the time, obviously, it was a good time for town. Obviously, it was on the crest of David Wagner had just come in and we'd started to see a turnaround in fortunes. But I felt like, whereas you could see that town was going on an upward trajectory, the actual content around town, the journalism wasn't great. I mean, you know, it was a bit clickbait There wasn't really much substance to it. And, you know, I thought at the time, 
there'd be a great opportunity for the club to get some journalism behind it, which was worthy of it, basically. So that was the idea. And there was a bit of a gap in the market at the time. Obviously, Mm -hmm. it's, it's changed a lot since, as we know. But at that time, there really wasn't that much in terms of fan-led blogs or even podcasts or anything of the sort. So at that time, I thought, well, this is a great opportunity for a fan-led forum and platform run by town fans about the club with a bit of a freedom to have a free license to say what we want, you know. That was basically the idea. And then obviously, as we began to speak and we sort of shared that vision, it was a bit of a no-brainer to bring you on board to sort of run the operational side of it with me. You said to me that doing Talk of the Town helped catch you up with a lot of stunted social skills or perhaps the colloquial term is arrested development you had between the ages of about 18 to 24 years old, mate. What caused those skills to stunt? Have you pinpointed the cause and how did TOTT help you with that? I haven't fully figured that out, but definitely between 18 and 24 was a difficult time in my life in terms of my self-esteem, my own image. There was a bit of an identity crisis going on a bit of imposter syndrome. So amongst all of that, I think, and I think it's true for a lot of things, but football fans included, that idea of being part of a group and having some belonging, that definitely sort of helps you place yourself within sort of like society, really. And that was why... It's massive for men, isn't it? It's of, massive for men. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Talk of the Town initially helped me with that. And then obviously when I went into full employment again, that also helped me catch up. I think that time, university for me was a really difficult time and and before that college. In both of them, there's almost sort of like an idea that you go to college and university is the best time of your life. You meet friends for life. And I definitely met some, not saying I didn't meet any, but I don't think I'd matured enough. I sort of went from school to college And at that point, the step up, you know, it impacted me both academically, but also in terms of socially, I just didn't seem to fit in. I just sort of hanged around groups of people who I'd already known from my high school. So I didn't really make any new friends. And then even going into university was similar. I sort of hung around people who I'd spent time with at college. And I think that almost that deficiency of social skills really impacted me for a long time but that's something that I've uh, obviously worked on and concentrated on working on amongst other things. You spoke there about image and we're going to talk about body image specifically later in the pod mate in your mental health journey but just sticking to TOTT for now we were doing it on the crest of a wave to be honest it's let's be real it was the best time ever to be a town fan and probably has been for the last 50 years at least. What were your favourite memories from that time? I think for me in terms of TOTT, all of it really was such a nice time capsule, really, to encapsulate what, as you say, was mm. sort of almost the ideal time to be doing journalism around town. Because, it, as I said, we had editorial freedom to say what we want. You know, I think we would have both felt quite comfortable criticising the club if we needed to. But at that point, we just didn't need to. <laughs> there was no need to <laughs> criticise the club because everything was just seemed, seemed to just go from strength to strength. Felt alien. For me, <laughs> Felt alien, it not really moaning. did. <laughs> For me, it was obviously, it was Wembley. I think a lot of town fans sort of echo the sentiment that Wembley was the pinnacle. And obviously, the Premier League, although we stayed up that first season in the Premier League, it's just not it. You know, watching your team sort of get 
thumped week on week and you're sort of just trying to scrape survival it's just not that enjoyable and I think it's a sentiment shared by a lot of fans particularly of clubs similar size to us who begin with the dream of the Premier League but the actual reality of it is it's a hard graft unless you sort of do a Brentford or Brighton yeah. a, a Brighton or a Fulham and you know you invest well and you have a lot of backing behind you and a really clear vision and it's what a, could have been a eh, mate what could have been yeah yeah as a wide-eyed and bushy-tailed 20-something-year-old who was in communications at the time, still am in communications in my full-time job, mm. but obviously I needed something else on my CV to sort of build my portfolio, shall yeah. we say. Yeah. I chucked myself into writing. We were writing quite a lot of articles, actually, a week, to be yeah. honest. And we were I was sometimes banging out a 600-word piece in about <laughs> half an hour like or less. <laughs> I also distinctly remember one of my favourite moments was when I wrote an article about Michael Heffaly, still probably my top five town players of all time, just because yeah. of how similar we kind of are in personality-wise. He's definitely more crackers than me. But he retweeted the article that I wrote, and I just remember being like, what? Like, players see these articles? Yeah. Like, I just, it really sort of like broke the fourth wall for me. Was there a similar moment for you doing it? Yeah, sharing that, actually. Seeing that was like, wow. Because like we were almost in a bit of a bubble between us. Mm. We were doing it. The The feedback we were getting from town fans was predominantly positive down at the Mac otherwise, <laughs> but you know. Um, but other than that, it, yeah, I think that moment sort of transcended things for me where I was like, wow, yeah, these players are seeing it. And at the same time, I almost thought that, you know, on a bit of a broader point, these footballers are human beings. They are on social media. They do see what we say. And obviously that wouldn't skew any criticism or positivity or anything, but it did make me feel a bit more mindful of, of what I said, how I said it, and sort of the message rather than sort of pinpointing criticism. Because, you know, some, yeah. one shooting of from biggest, the hip, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. One of my, my biggest pet peeves on social media, Twitter, etc. is if, you know, if you're going to criticise, criticise someone by all means, but, you know, if you start to at them and try and almost, mm. try and sort of almost invoke them seeing it, that's where I draw the line. And I think that's that's way too fine. Like, that's the end of the day. They're in the limelight. And, you know, if our jobs were in the limelight and, you know, people were on social media criticising us for our jobs, then obviously um, it takes a lot more than a thick skin to be able to sort of contend with that. So, so yeah, I think, like you say, I think the Michael Heffley moment was a big one. And just in general, the like I said, like the, the atmosphere was a really nice one. I think town fans could acknowledge that at the time what we were trying to do and I think they got on board with that. And I'm not going to say we, we're trailblazers or anything, but obviously it's moved on a lot now. And I'm glad for it, to be honest. I am really glad for it because it's it's nice to see earnest, proper journalism covering the club. You know, some great podcasts out there. So it's right now, I think it's probably a great, a great landscape of being a town fan in terms of the content that's being created. There's some really nice mm. things that you can listen to and read. You know, Stephen Chicken at the Examiner obviously puts out some really great content and and he takes that trans podcast, obviously. Mm. So Matt, some great Matt Shaw loves a moan as well. I'll, yeah. I'm going to shout him out on this pod. He loves a moan to me as yeah. well about town as much as the next man. But yeah, it is a great place to be right now, I think. Yeah, exactly. And I think obviously this season, depending on how it goes, you know, there's opportunities. It's something I want. I'm always going to dabble in a bit of the writing and the blogging and things. It's just obviously life gets in the way. What was your proudest achievement doing TOTT before we talk about the sort of coming to an end of it? 
I think the proudest moment was just, I can't really pinpoint one moment. I think it was just how it all came together, the actual brand of it, the website and the collaboration and obviously bringing you on board. It was that collaboration of minds and just the culmination of all of that into what I thought I still paid the monthly website fee to keep it live. <laughs> not that I'm planning on going back, but just because I like to just go and see it and be like, it's all, it almost encapsulates like a part of my life. And Is it almost like an affirmation it, for you now? Yeah, like yeah. Sort of, yeah. Yeah, to take it down would be quite sad for me. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm willing to just chip in the, the four or five pounds a month for the domain and the website's fees. And, and it's just a nice thing to go back and, like I say, and just have a look at. And like I say, it evokes the memories of that time. And that was a great time to be a town fan. Like all good things, mate, they come to an end. And TOTT ended for a number of reasons. From your perspective, what were they? How did you feel when you had to step back and essentially... Not close it down, but just no. put it into permanent hiatus, shall we say? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it was. I think between us, we knew it was coming in terms of it wasn't really related to what was happening on the pitch or off the pitch or anything like that. I think we both came to the point where it had grown to an extent that we would have needed to bring people on board to carry it on. Because, like you say, at the time we were writing three, four, five articles a week, particularly during the summer. Transfer windows were quite hectic where we'd be, you know, picking up signings and, and writing opinion pieces and all of these things. And quick it's a lot turnarounds. of work, man. Yeah. It is. And between the two of us, it was a lot. And at that point, the commitments then were getting almost too much without monetizing it and almost turning it into a job itself then I came to the conclusion that I didn't want to do that. You know, there's some things that you probably don't know about that I can talk about. Like, for example, I got some emails from people saying that they'd pay for plugs and sort of like gambling websites and things, you know, would you be willing to write a website where you're saying about odds and stuff and use our website oh, and we'll God. pay for it and things. And, and at that point, again, I, I took a step back and thought, when we first started this, it wasn't to go down that route of the clickbaiting and the monetizing posts and things. I didn't want to sell Selling myself our souls as well. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So at that point, I was like, right, unless we monetize it, then it wasn't feasible for me to dedicate as much time as I was to it without obviously mm. having an income. So it wouldn't have been that... fun either, as well. No, no. So that's when I decided to step back and then obviously I found a job. And at that point, then it was really almost too difficult to juggle both of them at the same time. So it's all, and, and at the same time, obviously, quite poetically, you started with Vent. So it almost, between the two of us, we knew at that time that there was just too much. There was just too much for us uh, yeah. to handle. I actually distinctly remember putting in the group chat that we had about starting then like i literally remember the conversation yeah. i was like we're taking over the world <laughs> yeah i remember the, the empire logo, the logo i remember yeah. putting the logo in which was good because we used the same guy to help us create the logo didn't we and yeah that mm. was great how did you feel in the weeks and months after you basically closed it down given it was your baby were you sad were you relieved what were the emotions to be honest, I was nonplussed. I hadn't checked out, but I was in the months coming up to that decision. I knew that it was coming. It was just a matter of time of figuring out when and how I wanted to do it. Because I thought about doing sort of like a final post or I thought about 
just taking it down completely and explaining the situation. But I thought, like I've said, I wanted to keep it there so that anyone could go back and look at that time, almost like an archive. And I wasn't upset about it. I, I took a lot from it. You know, obviously CV building, another story that I can talk about is that I went for Town's Examiner Post and it was between me and Stephen Chicken last two. And TOTT went a real long way because at that time I had no journalistic experience, nothing other than sort of freelance journalism and TOTT. So obviously they'd seen that and they'd seen what I've built. And even into my current job, websites and things, I've taken that with me. So I've taken a lot of things through the entire experience. So I'm a bit cathartic about it. I'm not not upset about how it ended. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the good times also at town came to an end and they came to an end Mm. pretty abruptly in those next couple of seasons. We went from arguably our greatest ever period, or at least for the last 50 years, to the first of an awful relegation from the Premier League and then a very high-stress relegation battle and then COVID and then another relegation battle and then <laughs> and then a promotion season and then a, well, then a, and then a relegation battle. Did yeah. you fall out of love with town at this point as well? Uh, not from the first relegation. So from the, the relegation from the Premier League, I was still seeing ticket holder, going every week, going to away games, glued to Twitter... But then I don't know what sort of something sort of happened where I think it was COVID to be honest. I think when COVID happened and football carried on, but with no fans in empty stadiums, and even now it still doesn't feel real. It still feels, I feel like there's a pre COVID and post COVID period. And pre COVID, I was the most avid town fan. If I was to show you around my bedroom right now, I've got sort of posters and stuff but post-covid i've just never you know again life work gets in the way but i've never felt that connection as much under corbran i didn't feel it obviously schofield obviously warnock there's still the the nostalgia and the sentiment there but i think that period under wagner what he for all of us, really encapsulated what we're about as a town. And since then, there's been a bit of an identity crisis and I've just struggled to reconnect with them. Uh, I still watch them every week, but it's still the emotional investment isn't there as much as it used to be. It doesn't ruin my weekend now when town lose, which is a good thing because I wouldn't have many nice weekends if, it, if that was the case. <laughs> um, but yeah, not as much, not as much, no. Do you think you'll get back there if we, say, got a new manager in? Obviously, Warnock is going to re-energise the fans as well. But do you think if we got, say, a manager after him and the new ownership revitalised some things and changed some things around the club, maybe open the academy up again? You know, all these sort of things that could snowball, hopefully, in my most optimistic mood. Could that reconnect happen? I think so. I think there's there's the possibility. I'm not opposed, obviously. I I think the direction the club's going in at the moment is, is one where there's some stability which I think is a good thing and from there you know they just have to build I think what was so upsetting for me and a lot of town fans was the promises made by the club post relegation from the Premier League the legacy and it's not materialised and with that you can accept relegation if on the back of it you see clubs doing it like Burnley did it 
like many clubs where they've they've accepted relegation but they've they've got a plan in place to rebuild and that just didn't seem to materialise. That plan didn't come into place. The Premier League legacy, what legacy is there? I don't know what it is. I don't know what we've taken from it. And from there, I think a lot of fans were hurt by that because it was almost like a betrayal of trust because the lifeblood of the club, when you're told something and it's renegaded on, like any relationship in life, like, once that trust is broken, it's difficult to refine that trust. I don't know if that's as much of a challenge now under new ownership, but I think it's something definitely to consider if I was to Let's act just... Kevin Nagel, which I do not do on Twitter, by the way, guys. Cause... For all the town fans listening, don't do it, please. Please stop. Yeah. It's going to end in tears. <laughs> Yeah. Let's reflect on your professional journey then, mate. So going from mm. TOTT to lifeguarding to being a yeah. civil servant now, what has yeah. all of it, and particularly TOTT, taught you about yourself? I think for me, the journey of going into employment is probably amongst sort of finding the, the love of fitness and, and gym, which we'll talk about later, is probably one of the most important decisions I've made in terms of my own self-worth my self-esteem confidence you know I've gone from being really introverted really reclusive from 18 to 24 when I got into my role particularly as a lifeguard you know it's a customer facing environment it's a very big group of staff you had to come out of your shell almost and you had to be able to talk to people and communicate and socialize and through all of that it like I say I think it's probably been the biggest beneficiary for my life in terms of even my current job where I'm on the phone. If you had asked me to do this five years ago, this podcast, I definitely wouldn't have been able to do it. I struggled with phone calls, struggled to talk. So, you know, taking a step back and reflecting, I'm really proud of the journey that I've taken and I've grown a lot during that time. So that's why I'm so thankful, even though, you know, you might think you're leaving your job, sorry, you're leaving university with a master's degree, you go to become a lifeguard, it almost doesn't match in terms of the qualification and the level of the job. But actually, for me, I needed something where I could become more well-rounded and to be in such a social job, you know, you're contesting with people every day and conversing and different characters. It was so important. We talked all about Elliot, the Huddersfield Town fan channel founder and professional and civil servant and lifeguard. Now I want to dive a bit deeper and talk about your own mental health journey, mate. So I ask all my special guests this question on this topic first. Take me back to early life, teenage years, and were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Elliot we meet here? So I consider myself almost a bit of a reverse bell chart, if you can imagine. So it's straight and then it goes down. And then it comes back up straight. So my early years, start of high school, throughout high school, really, I was, you know, sociable, chatty. And then it was college and university where I dipped and sort of regressed. But again, all of this is almost in retrospect. I think with my mental health issues, I almost buried my head in the sand. And because it came and it went and it came and it went, during the good times where it wasn't there, I almost sort of neglected to recognise that actually 
it was there. For example, anxiety, it was just there at a much lower rate. So I think the first big sort of event was my GCSEs. Going to into them, I'd revised hard. I went in confident. The results was 10 A's and a B, so I, I did well. But actually, the exams, I really suffered. I still remember in my first exam, I was in a sports hall and I sat down, I opened the paper, I went to get started and I had this sudden urge to go to the toilet. So it was weird, but I was like, okay. So I went to the toilet, came back, sat down, 15 minutes later, that urge came again. For me at the time, I was really confused by it all. And I was like, okay, so I don't really understand what's going on. So finished the exam, went to the doctors, had test run. I thought I must have had some sort of UTI or something or a bladder infection. I didn't. And now looking back, for me, stress, panic, anxiety, for me, all materialises in that, these physical symptoms. For me in particular, it's an overactive bladder where there's this urge to go to the toilet. And that first exam and throughout my GCSEs, was my first real encounter with it. Building on that, mate, and we're going to get to the anxiety in a bit, but the main issue in your mental health journey you want to discuss is body dysmorphia. Now, it's undiagnosed. Mm. I must stress that to the listeners. Yeah. But just tell me how the symptoms started, how they presented, and how they impacted your mental health, but also your physical health too. So, again, it wasn't something... Again, this was during college and university where I felt the effects of this the most. I put on a lot of weight and again, it's undiagnosed, but looking back retrospectively, I noticed a lot of things where if you were to read up on the symptoms and of body dysmorphia, I had a lot of them basically. So things like covering my stomach, which was a conscious area of mine with cushions or wearing really baggy clothing to sort of like hide the shape of my body. If I was to go swimming or go to a beach or anything, I wouldn't take my shirt off. I had to keep a shirt on. There was other things like avoiding wanting to be photographed, even by my mum, and that's something that I'm quite sad about, is looking back, there's a period of my life where there's not much photography of me, there's not many pictures, and I feel sorry for my mum and my dad and my friends if they wanted photos and I'd be like oh no no I don't want any photos don't feel like having photos taken of me and even in the most extreme cases it was avoiding my own reflection even like in mirrors and things like that so at that point I got to a point where it was literally one night where I was like right this is too much and you know I need to take action. When it comes to the cause of it mate obviously you said that you had put on a lot of weight so Mm. In your head, was the body image issues related to the weight itself and feeling overweight or that you were ugly or something like that? Or was there a deeper issue which the weight gain was caused by, so to speak? I think the weight gain, in a lot of ways, was organic. It wasn't induced by trauma or anything like that. For me, it's not a coping mechanism for, you know, if I'm sad, I don't turn to food, you know. So some of it was eating out of boredom. But for me, yeah, it was mainly the feeling of being overweight, the self-consciousness, the feeling of how other people perceive me. But mainly it was me not being happy and comfortable in my own skin 
not being happy with myself that made me have to change in my own mind and it was related to the weight more than anything else. A few years ago you decided to do something about it and you went on a weight loss journey where you made a lot of changes to your life both in your diet and in other parts like exercise so how did this go because when you were losing weight you said to me that some of the methods you employed you now look back on as red flags. Yeah so when I first started to lose weight I did all of this blindly if I was to do it now it'd be very different but it was mainly I started by just eating a lot less a lot lot less and exercising more that was the conclusion I came to if I exercise more and I eat less then I'll lose weight and I did and it started with just upping the steps walking miles every day at the time I was unemployed so I didn't have any commitment so I would be just walking a lot and then cooking I began with keto diet so I was eating I really minimized the amount of carbs that I was getting into my diet And I saw an immediate sort of drop in weight, which at the time, because I was so new to it all, I was like, brilliant, you know, I'm losing weight. In reality, it was probably water weight. And I was just wanting retaining as much water because I wasn't getting any carbs in. Then when that stopped sort of losing weight, I got into different diets, liquid diets, slim fast shakes. I was having a thousand calories. When I started counting calories, I was having 1,000 to 1,400 calories a day. At the weight I was at, which was almost 100 kilograms, I was probably needing 3,000 calories, 3,500 calories just to maintain my weight. So that massive drop was really dangerous, to be honest, unhealthily dangerous. And at the time, I just didn't know. I just didn't know that that's not what you should do or that was unhealthy. And again, looking back, I acknowledge that a lot of these things that I do now, the way I do it now is so much healthier and I feel so much better. And even beyond diets, decisions I made, I regret. Um, Things like, for example, my family would have a takeaway and I wouldn't. I'd have my own meal that I make. Now, there's a difference between being disciplined and sacrificing. And the difference between it now was... It wasn't a case of me not having a takeaway because of an overall goal. In my mind at that time, I thought if I had a takeaway and then all the weight I'd lost, all of the hard work I'd done would go down the pan, basically. So at that time, it wasn't decisions being made in good faith, in a good headspace. Whereas at this point now, I'm in such a better headspace, basically. So how did you make the changes to start losing weight in a healthy way? Was it purely about education? Mainly education. I also got a personal trainer who, through him, I learned a lot more about what I should do. Basically what happened was I lost weight. I lost a lot of weight. I lost about 30 kilograms, but then I plateaued. I was no longer losing weight. So that was when I decided to go to the gym. I went to the gym on my own to begin with, but it was mainly, it was sort of like throwing darts in the dark. There was no aim. There was no goals. There was no direction. It was sort of just going in there, doing all of the machines, none of the free weights, and then leaving, or doing an hour of cardio on a bike or a treadmill, and then leaving. And 
I got to a point where, because I'd made the lifestyle choice, and it's a journey that I'd committed myself to, it was one where I now needed guidance. Because on my own, I was not educated enough to know what to do next. So that's why I went through a personal trainer. You said to me at this point of your life, <clears throat> you had gone on a journey of not just self-realization, but a redemption arc. Just tell me what you meant by that. For me at that time, I decided that I wanted to change my lifestyle in a whole manner completely. So rather than just being quiet and shy and introverted through the gym, through fitness, but also, as I mentioned previously, through my jobs, I decided that I wanted to almost recreate my image, recreate my identity and walk into a room with my chest held high and feel more confident. So going to the gym, initially I was petrified. I'd hang in the corners. Are, mate. <laughs> I'd hang in the corners, in the dark corners of the gym. I wouldn't go in the middle. For the first month that I went to the gym to actually do free weights, I wouldn't go without my personal trainer. I was too scared. But then, like I say, it built up that experience, that time in there. It built my self-esteem, my confidence. You know, I wouldn't feel afraid to ask someone for how many sets they've got left or, or can I jump in on your exercise and I go to quite a, a rough gym so you know that confidence was needed and from there it's transcended the gym into all other elements of my life where I have that confidence now that's the redemption arc in terms of during college and university I was really low confidence low self-esteem really introverted almost reclusive to be honest rather than, i don't think introverted covers how reclusive i was i used to literally i used to go to university do my lecture come home that's it nothing else no social elements to it nothing whereas now i've got that confidence where i'm almost catching up on on what i missed through college and university that so them social elements going to festivals Doing all the things that you would have done at that time, I'm catching up on now, but I'm still thankful that I'm at the place I am now where I can catch up. I don't take that for granted that I've come such a long way that I'm now capable of doing these things that I wasn't previously able to do. And I don't look back at my former self in the informative years and despise myself at that time. The only sort of sadness is that I just didn't make the changes and be brave to make them changes sooner. When it comes to your recovery, one positive tool you've also used, mate, is a food blog you set up. So how has that helped your creativity, your relationship with food and your mental health? Yeah, so when I first started to lose weight, obviously there were, as I mentioned, there were the unhealthy elements to it. But the healthy element to it was I fell in love with cooking and fell in love with creating food I went vegetarian at the same time so I've been vegetarian for five years now and an element of that was literally because I was on such a beige diet beforehand that I wanted to just try vegetables so I thought right I'll go vegetarian and I did and this blog was just a way of me showing off my culinary skills for any single women that are available but also because I wanted to um just document what I've been doing and then I got to the point where I've started doing what I'm doing now like this podcast but also sort of therapy and things and I wanted to use a blog 
because obviously TOTT, I do enjoy writing as a pastime. I wanted to use that blog to be a guide for people who were in a similar boat to me or maybe in a similar position to how I was before, who want to lose weight or who want to change the body image. But I want them to learn from the mistakes that I made, which is why my blog highlights the journey I've gone on, but also to talk about things like calorie counting and the dangers of it, becoming obsessed with it, which was something that I've also gone through, but also just acknowledging different elements of life experience that I've picked up that they can take things from. I want it to be a positive platform for people to take advice from and not feel that they're on their own and also for us as young men it's really difficult for us to talk unless you make almost like a concerted effort to talk about your mental health like this is so I wanted that blog to be a place where I could open up but in an almost a controlled manner where I could do it bit by bit it was almost like self-therapy in that when I was writing these blogs, I was reflecting on what had happened in the past. And because I was reflecting from where I am now, I could see the mistakes I made. I could see the mental health issues. And because at that time, it's tunnel vision. I was in there. It's hard to take a step back and reflect. Whereas because I am where I am now, looking back and reflecting it opened it all up to me. So that was the idea behind the blog. Brilliantly, as part of your recovery, you are now completely comfortable swimming without a t-shirt and you've now got in the gym and you can get changed in your gym without going into a cubicle. Have you taken the time to be proud of yourself, mate? Yeah, yeah. I think that's something that, and it's something that conversations I have with my friends, with my personal trainer, I think it's easy. It's very easy for us Particularly with fitness, I think it's easy to be goal-oriented, but never satisfied. So you might think, right, I want to do three-plate deadlift, 140 kilograms. But when you hit 140 kilogram deadlift, you don't then stop and go, wow, I've done 140 kilogram deadlift. You're then thinking, right, what's next? You know, what can I do next? So taking that step back and actually being proud of the journey you've gone on, is such a powerful thing to do. And it's not just I can take my shirt off and go swimming. I can get changed in the changing rooms. I can now stand in the middle of a changing room and pose and take a photo of myself and not care what the people around me think. And I think that, again, is something that I've taken from the gym and from falling in love with exercise is that everyone's on their own journey. And they're not necessarily, they don't care about what you're doing. So you just concentrate on what you're doing. And that's sort of something that I've taken into life in general, is I'm a lot more bullish now. Whereas beforehand, for example, on social media, on Instagram or whatever, I might think, oh, should I post that photo? Should I post that video? Do people want to see that? Whereas now, there's no embarrassment. There's no, it's almost like in my own mind, my determination is just that I'm going to do what I want to do. And if people like it, brilliant. And if they don't, they can lump it, basically. It's almost like a. am not meaning to be antagonistic. But at the same time, I think if you become too obsessed with what everyone else thinks, everyone else's perception, then you almost lose your own perception of yourself. 
it's so diluted with what everyone else is thinking. So my mindset now is do what makes you happy, do what you can do. And if you feel the benefits of it and it's not harming anyone else, who cares? Let's move on to something which you haven't managed to overcome just yet, but hopefully you will soon. And it's anxiety, which we mentioned earlier in the pod, mate. So how does the anxiety yeah. manifest in your experience and affect your mental health? So body dysmorphia was something that I overcame, but also it was something that I overcame in retrospect. Anxiety is something that I've contested with and struggled with throughout the majority of my life. And it comes and it goes, but it's the biggest challenge. Absolutely the biggest challenge. I'm trying to be proactive with it in terms of what I'm doing now, but in terms of how it materialises, what it looks like, as aforementioned, it's mainly physical for me. It's less so a conscious thing. It's not on my mind. I'm not thinking about it. I'm not overly worrying about things. But deeper down on a subconscious level, I definitely am because my body tells me. So whereas my mind might be relatively okay in terms of my thought processes, my body tells me, actually, you are stressed. For me, it's almost more panic than anxiety for a lot of things. So, for example, things that I find a struggle, appointments, doctor's appointments, medical appointments, even sort of like haircuts, things that are banal, everyday life things. For me, I don't know what it is. It's something that I'm trying to figure out, but there's some panic there. I don't know if it's a panic about you're in that place for a certain amount of time. You can't leave if you feel like you need to leave. I don't know what it is, but that's something that is a big challenge and something that I am looking to overcome. In terms of physical symptoms, I I mentioned the overactive bladder. Obviously, there's also a bit of panic attack sort of symptoms in terms of tightness of the chest, um, shortness of breathing, feeling sick, having butterflies, that sort of thing. You also said it to me that it's impacted by the weather, especially winter. And seasonal affective disorder is something that, you know, loads of people experience. So how did you feel when it was at your worst? At my worst, I felt debilitated, incapacitated, that I couldn't do things that I've done before. And I've done before fine. Blood donation was the big one. I went for blood donation just after Christmas. And I went there and I was feeling a bit nervous and anxious. I think in my own head at that point, I was thinking, well, you know, it's been a couple of months. You've not done it in a while. It's natural to feel a bit nervous. But when I got in there, the anxiety and the stress built up more and more. And I got to the point where, they test your blood for your, your iron levels and everything, and I was still anxious, but it felt manageable. But as I got to the chair to get donate blood, it was too much, and they were very understanding. But at that time, I think that was an example of how normal things that I could do when I was on top of my mental health. At that point, I just couldn't, physically couldn't do it. And there was a bit of a, almost a an aftershock of that for a couple of months where I was really, really struggling. Even at the gym, I was struggling. Even the things I enjoyed, I was struggling with. And I came to the realisation that period of time, Christmas was 
really difficult for me mentally. But then also the year before, it had also been really difficult for me mentally. And the year before that, and at that point, I sort of put two and two together and realised that during these winter months, I really struggled with my mental health. And that's when, again, it was a, the seasonal affective disorder. So I've got myself one of the lamps and things. And for myself at the moment, I know coming round to Christmas and in, in the winter months, you know, we're in summer now, I'm almost wanting to prepare myself and prime myself to try and do things differently or attempt to do things differently, be it going on holiday at winter or doing something to see how I can sort of figure out a way of mitigating and minimising the stresses and rigours of their months because it's clearly something that I find so challenging. Before we reflect, mate, when you were working as a lifeguard, at that time we were still speaking quite regularly and I remember checking in on you every now and then seeing how you were you sounded like you were perhaps drifting through life a bit maybe without a lot of direction or purpose is that fair and how much did the anxiety come into that yeah that was fair at the time again as I mentioned I got a degree a master's degree in politics so it wasn't a natural career progression it didn't add up and I left uni not knowing what to do I didn't have a clear plan of a job I wanted to do and I went into the job as a lifeguard literally the week before the COVID lockdown began so I almost had like a stunted beginning to my job there in terms of I was nervous I was the new person I was getting to grips with everything and then boom lockdown when I came back it started like I'd, it felt like I'd start again and I was like you said I was drifting there was no direction there was no plan and yeah it was something that at the time I don't think the anxiety was impacting it but I also think that the anxiety was probably playing a part to an extent if the anxiety wasn't as much as a factor as it is in my life then I probably would have made changes and moved on a lot sooner let's reflect on your mental health journey mate so a what has it taught you about yourself and b if you could go back and talk to the Elliot who was feeling pretty anxious, the Elliot who was working that very unsociable job as a lifeguard, despite it being a sociable job inside the swimming pool, I must imagine, mm. or the Elliot who was really struggling with his body dysmorphia, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? In terms of what I'd say about myself through the mental health journey is that I'm actually stronger than, than I think I am. I've got a bit of a gripe with myself in that I sort of beat myself up a little bit about my mental health in terms of I'm probably in my best physical shape and health of my life and I wanted my mental health to match that and it frustrates me that it doesn't but at the same time you know I just have to think the amount of time and hours and dedication that I put in to change my lifestyle changes to physically change my body and my outlook on life I also have to do with my mental health so not to sort of neglect myself or do myself a disservice and beat myself up because I'm not where I want to be yet but that doesn't mean that I can't get there with regards to what I would say to myself with regards to when I was feeling most anxious and also with the body dysmorphia again is to, to accept that things can change and to just live in the moment and also to accept and acknowledge that if you set your mind to things and you want to make change, 
and you want to feel better about yourself, that you can do it. It is within you and you can do it. Our final topic of conversation, Elliot, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests. If we have time, it is a general natter and chat about our mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health, mate? My mental health at the moment is, it's not bad. It's not bad. There's still some lingering anxiety and some some lingering stress there. But in terms of the manageability of it, I'm managing it well. And like I say, I think during the summer months particularly, I can sort of deal with it best. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good. And what age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind? I'd say 24. And was it a eureka moment or a gradual process? Gradual, definitely a gradual process. One where it took a lot of reflection to actually realise what was going on. And can you remember the first ever conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What did you say? And how do you look back on it? Did it feel like on the one hand a big burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders or on the other something quite easy, insignificant and normal to do? I'm fortunate that I have uh, good support structures around me. And once I got to that point where I'd realised that I had these issues, I also recognised at the same time that I had to communicate and open up about them. Whereas previously I'd either been unaware or sort of burying these feelings. I actually needed to talk about them. So it was a conversation with my parents where I explained about how I was feeling, mainly about the anxiety. And I just basically described about how I experienced it. And the conversation was there for them. And they tried to, obviously, as they do as parents, offer solutions but I sort of accepted I told them that it was something that had to come from within me and it wasn't much of a burden but it probably didn't lift as much weight off my shoulders as I probably would have hoped it would have. Mm, Okay interesting. What things do you find in life that trigger your mental health mate? So it could be things people say to you, a sound, being in a particular social environment or have you not figured all of them out yet? So for me it's mainly the big events, exams, driving tests, doctor's appointments, other things like jury service, all them sort of things. But for me, the main trigger is the feeling of not being in control of what I can do. I think some of it is probably, and it's something that I'm going to try and figure out and and get diagnosed is potential ADHD. But for me, I'm quite fidgety. I don't like having to stay in the same place and, you know, not being able to move around. And I think some of that might be ADHD potentially. And some of it, the anxiety as well of, I want to be in the control of the situation and be able to decide if I want to leave or stay. So meetings and appointments and things like that mainly. And conversely, what positive tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have worked? and Maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? So the main ones that I'm doing at the moment is I'm doing um, an IAPT course, Stress Control. I'm also doing... Well, I'm meant to be doing daily mindfulness, but it's something that sort of, it comes and it goes. It's, I probably should dedicate more time to it than I do. And then obviously exercise uh, is the big one, which I find a lot of catharsis from and also sort of that feeling of, I always feel better coming out of a, of a session at the gym. So yeah, in terms of the ones that work, definitely the exercise. And I think the mindfulness 
if I gave it as much attention as it probably deserves, would also be really beneficial. So that's something that I'm consciously making an effort to do more of. What is the best book, or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Now, it can be mental health or self-help related. It doesn't exclusively have to be. And if you can't think of a book, an album, a TV show, any piece of popular culture. There is a book, but I've I've forgotten the name. One second, then I'll, I'll <laughs> it's find always it. happens. <laughs> I'll find it because I do have one. Um, where is it? Unfuck your brain. I'll have to put the explicit marker on this podcast now. <laughs> yeah, the only okay. time I swear is actually just uh, to cite a name of a book. But this book is really is a really good one in terms of explaining the science behind why you feel how you feel. It's almost like cognitive behavioural therapy and it that explains what you're doing, your cycles of thought and how to sort of almost unpick that to think about it in a different way. So say the title one more time and the author? Unfuck your brain, Faith G. Harper. If there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health, what would it be and why? Um, that's a good question. My mantra would be it's always better after the fact that would be my mantra in terms of for me almost every time that I felt anxious stressed nervous it's always been in the build-up it's always led up to it and actually when the event whatever it is has happened you always come out the other side of it thinking why were you feeling anxious why were you feeling stressed because actually what you might have pictured in your mind of how it was going to transpire it never does. It always comes out fine. Always comes out relatively fine. And the trauma that you imagine it's going to be, it never is. So that's the mantra. What do you love about yourself, mate? Um, sound of my own voice? No. Um, <laughs> I know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think, again, it, a bit of a deep thing. It's the journey I've come on, been on. And the self-improvements that I've made and the fact that I've instigated that. It wasn't provoked by someone saying something to me. It wasn't provoked by someone suggesting something to me. It's all come from within. It was all me. You know, I decided one day that I wanted to change my life and I have. And as a final question, this is a broad one. What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life, feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if, most importantly, they want to do it. Talking, mainly. Talking and also acknowledging and recognising that it's strong, the strength in talking about the challenges that you're facing. It's the bravery and the strength comes from being willing and open to actually speak about how you're feeling I think it's very easy for you to cloud your own judgment and think that you're weak or that it's cowardly to be anxious or nervous or stressed but actually the strength is actually being able to for example do this podcast or speak about how you're feeling whether that's to a room of a hundred or to a room of two I think it's actually really compelling and doing this podcast will be a proud achievement of mine in a few years definitely and on that note Elliot Wheat Bowen my old mate thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me pal thank you for having me
Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In pod. I want to say a big thank you to my old friend, Elliot, for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for letting me check in with him. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, I'll sign us off by saying please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and want to support us further, you can do so at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk or you can buy a Vent t-shirt, buy a ticket to the Just Checking In podcast live show or make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe. All of those links are on our link tree. That's www.linktr.ee slash venthelpuk. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember guys... It is always okay to vent. Bye.